0: Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins and cinematographer Robert Yeoman is back. Robert, or Bob, as I was given permission to call him, is a longtime collaborator of Wes Anderson, Paul Feig, and he's known for movies ranging from The Squid and the Whale to Bridesmaids. Somehow, I feel like he has shot at least like four of my favorite movies if not more. His scope of work is groundbreaking and expansive, and he recently re-entered the world of short film in his partnership with Anderson for the four-part series adapted from Roald Dahl's short stories. Now on Netflix, he shot three of those shorts. And in prepping for this interview and knowing that a ton of cinematographers are out there listening to the podcast and reading No Film School, I decided to bring on my longtime friend and collaborator cinematographer, Ryan Thomas, so we could do as we love here at No Film School, geek out about filmmaking and get into the nitty gritty of the execution of things. Ryan and I are fresh off of shooting our feature, An Island, and... We are always excited to unpack how we can grow together in our DP director relationship. So, hey, Ryan, thank you for being here.
1: Wow. Thank you for inviting me. This is great. I love it.
0: <laughs> you had to listen to that whole intro. Um, and now and now I'm like shining the mic spotlight on you. Well, we just finished our conversation with Bob and I thought it was so fun to, to just listen to his storytelling.
1: Yeah. I mean, he... I mean, like, he's pretty prolific in all the work that he's done. And so, like, honestly, yeah, being invited to talk with him a little bit, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, one of the greats here. So, yeah, great, great to hear. Great, great to talk to him a bit. And honestly, just a great guy.
0: guy. Just a a great great guy. guy. (laughs) So lovely. And I love that he, like, kept bringing up that he played basketball. One of the things that I also loved that he touched upon is the importance of building teams and hiring and being hired. And so we dug into a lot of that process. One of the things that we don't talk about, because it's the second time we've had Bob on the No Film School podcast, but we don't talk about his early career. So if you're curious about that, or maybe you even want to start with that episode, which came out in 2021, I almost said 2001, which... I am realizing is further and further away than this date here, 2023. But I definitely recommend checking that out as this is almost a continuation of that conversation. What else stood out to you and what else do you think our listeners will get from this episode?
1: Let's see here. I guess just like the fact that, well, one, to get better at making films, you really just truly have to do it. You have to go out there. You got to shoot with whatever you got. and you know, it's a great thing technology of today like really allows us to do that cheaply. And, you know, it's great to hear that, like, he's very on board with that idea. And I guess, I don't know, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that, that really stood out to me. I like it, it really feels to me, at least from, like, you know, his work with Wes and everything, just like how he uses very simple tools to do complicated things. I love that.
0: That's such a great place to leave it as we put our listeners into the interview. I feel like I'm like a claw picking them up and placing them into a conversation with one of the greats. So now our interview with Robert Yeoman. Welcome back to the No Film School podcast, Bob. We're so glad to have you here.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: It feels like 2021 was not that long ago. And then I look at the work that you've done since then. Another feature, a series of short films. Congratulations on continuing to be so prolific.
2: Well, well, thanks very much. (laughs) Pays the bills.
0: It, It surely does. Well, we're here with Ryan. Ryan and I have worked together as director and cinematographer for a couple of years now. And and so I'd love to kick off with a conversation and hearing your thoughts on how you've built trust and relationships with some of the most renowned directors of our time. And what does the foundation of those relationships look like when you first start working with someone?
2: Well, I think you have to start by having a similar view of how their movie should look. You know, if we have opposing views, it's never going to work. So, you know, when I get interviewed for any job. It's always, you know, we kind of talk about just, you know, not specifically oftentimes, but more just generalizations of how we see things. And I know, for instance, when I first met Wes many years ago, Wes Anderson, Bottle Rocket, we just kind of hit it off. And we talked a lot about movies we like, uh, visual styles, things of that nature. And, you know, we just kind of clicked on that level. So that's I think the very first thing, well, the first thing is that you like the script. I think if you don't like the script, you probably shouldn't take the film because it's going to create problems down the road. So that's the first thing I start with. And then obviously, you know, because you spend so much time with the director, you have to enjoy being around that person, you know, and and if for some reason you just don't like the director, it, It could possibly work, but, you know, it gets a little sticky. So I genuinely really enjoy the directors I work with and enjoy having dinner with them, hanging out with them. And, you know, I think that's, it's a really kind of tight relationship. And it's important that the two of you really are on the same team. And my allegiance is always to the director, (coughs) excuse me, you know, no matter what. So that's something that I really, you know, I always, the director's my best friend on the movie. So I'm I'm there to serve the director as best I can. Um, I guess I'm kind of curious,
1: you know, I- interviewing for a project, do you get much time to develop, you know, a personal relationship with the director to decide whether or not if this is a good fit for both of you?
2: It's um, tricky because even in, in today's world, sometimes I live in Los Angeles and they might, be in Europe, you know, or something. So it's on a Zoom. And the tricky thing about it is, you know, typically you're on a Zoom for a half hour, maybe an hour, or an interview if it's in person. And then it, if they really decide they want to hire you, they often will ask for a second meeting. And, you know, I found that anybody can be really charming. Uh, in a half-hour time period, but you know, I uh, one of the advantages of the internet is I then check out what they've done before, and I look, you know, I go on IMDb and see if I happen to know another cinematographer who's worked with them, or an AD, or a production designer. And if I do, I contact that person and say, "So, what's so and so like?" You know, and try to get somebody else. And that won't totally determine whether I take the job or not but i I think you know you try to do a little research on them and if they're known to be really difficult and mean and nasty i tend to avoid those kinds of situations i you know i have enough stress in my life without having to throw myself into that so you know i want to work with people who are are going to treat me reasonably well and listen to me and not you know try to bully me in any way or whatever you know so you know that those are Kind of, it, but it's difficult because you do, you have a meeting and then possibly a second meeting, and in that time period, you have to decide because you know you're with this person for months at a time, a, you know a lot of hours in the day, and you know uh, I, I, I love making films, and, but I want it to be a fun process, not a total stressed out. Process and you know I've been in those situations before earlier in my career and I've gotten to a point in my life where I I don't want to be in that situation so you know it, it's got to be fun for all of us and yet obviously do the work and do the best right.
0: work. So. we we do talk a lot on the podcast about creating a supportive psychologically safe environment on set and it I love that you prioritize one, enjoying the people that you're working with as people, as humans, in addition to the vision that they're creating. Is there any through line that you've seen with the directors that you've worked with where you have, who have conti- have led, built sets and built teams that are in crews that feel protected and are having fun and all working towards this vision, even when the work is hard? Any through lines that you've noticed with Working well, styles?
2: You know, with Wes uh, Anderson, you know, we have a lot of the same people over the years. And so you, I will establish relationships with them as well. And these people come from all over the world. Uh, Melina Cannonero is Italian. She's our costume designer. And Adam Stockhausen <laughs> is our designer. He lives in New York. And we have people from Germany, France, England, you know, Scotland. You know, our key group Sanjay's from India. So we have a lot of the same faces and uh, with Wes, it's kind of unique in that we all will frequently live in the same hotel and have dinner together every night. And it's more of a family kind of situation, which contrasts with how most movies are made where you show up at the set in the morning and you work all day and then you get in your car and drive home and you don't see these people. And so it's a different kind of dynamic that happens on set because of this and, and i think he likes to foster that and and that's kind of an unusual uh, way of working in today's world you know and and he likes to choose locations that are typically kind of not close to where everybody lives you know like i know in in grand budapest hotel we were in a town of gurlitz which was two hours from berlin and so people who lived in Berlin could drive home on the weekend. And, but then during the week, they were stuck in Gerlitz with us, which you know, when I say stuck, I mean, it was a great place to be, you know. And, yeah. and we, all, we all really, I, I really loved Gerlitz and so did everybody else, you know. But for them, they did get an opportunity, the Germans, to go home. And the same in French Dispatch in France. We were in Angoulême, which was a really charming town and city. But it was, you know, by speed train, I think, it was an hour and a half, two hours to Paris. So, again, the, the French crew could go home on the weekend and see their wife and kids or husbands and kids, as the case may be. So, you know, it, it, he likes to kind of take us out of your immediate comfort zone and establish that kind of uh, uh, situation so that everybody's concentrating more in the movie and less, less distracted by, you know, the everyday life of your families. So... <laughs> You know, so that, that's pretty much his his philosophy. You
0: know, Ryan right, and I can definitely resonate because we just shot our feature on an island in Panama, okay. and ha- we had to have the conversation. <laughs> Ryan was like, "Well, where will we put the the truck?" And I was like, "Oh, what do, what truck?" And I was like, "Well, there aren't any roads on the island that we're shooting on, so it was like a big bringing yeah, people outside like, of their whoa. comfort zone." <laughs>
1: Okay, boats. Got it. No problem. Boats and
0: wagons. (laughs) We love boats and wagons. Ryan, did you have a question?
1: Yeah, I do. You know, because I was reading a little bit about Asteroid City and, like, you know, I found something about how you guys had brought on a theatrical lighting designer for the play sequences. And, you know, it kind of ties into what you're talking about now because I guess I was just kind of curious, like, you know, how do you... Is there anything... And it's like, what's your process for like interviewing people and making sure that they're going to be a good fit for this, you know, kind of like family
2: world that Wes is trying to create? Yeah, well, because most of the crew lives in Europe again, and I live here in L.A., I, I do Zooms with them. And, you know, I've, I, first of all, I, I, the production will have the CVs of, say, five gaffers or four gaffers in France or Germany or wherever. And I'll look at the CVs and then if I happen to know a, a DOP that has worked with those people, I contact them and I find cinematographers are pretty open. And I know when people contact me, I'm not gonna recommend somebody who I, I don't think is a good fit, you know. And so, you know, we have a kind of a bond that way. And uh so I contact and if that doesn't isn't the case, I, I interview I know I it down to maybe two or three guys. And, you know, I get on a zoom with them and, you know, cause I've seen their movies. So I know what they're capable of doing, but it's more of a, a personal get to know you kind of thing. Are you married? Do you have kids? Are you uh we call it football and American soccer. Or are you a football fan? My, I'm a big football fan because my son's a soccer player and uh, you know, who's your team and, what do you like to do on your time off and do you have any pets and you know i mean i just anything to just engage them and try to get to know them as people and because again i'm going to be spending with an ac or a gaffer or a key grip or dolly grip i'm going to be spending a lot of time with that person on set and you know do they have a sense of humor you know i mean because i'm a big believer in just keeping the set you know have fun while we're there you know and and you know, you know, so these Zooms that I have are often, and if it's in LA, you know, it's in person, but I have my crew here, which I generally, are the same crew, but you know, it's a way of get to know that person and they can last an hour long. It's not just, you know, we just go off on tangents. You know, a lot of them are into music. We talk about bands they like, or art they like, photographers they like, what do you know? And I really try to get to know them as people because I know that I'm going to be spending a lot of time with this person and, you know, it's important that we get along, you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to hire a gaffer who's going to be grouchy all the time and, oh, uh, why don't we do this instead? Or, you know, that, that's not, kind uh, of for me, it's just is a headache. So I do a lot of vetting, I guess is what you call it, you know, before I hire them. But then I always check them out with the local, because usually, you know, if we're getting in another country, there's a local producer, and I'll call that person and just say, hey, I'm thinking about hiring, you know, this person, and what's your experience with this person, and is this a good fit for our movie, and, you know, the producers are protecting themselves as well, because you don't want someone who's going to fight with production all the time, you know? And then I'm dragged in the middle of these fights between, you know, a crew member and the production. And I I don't want to deal with that, you know? And so I want to make sure that the production is also saying, yeah, these people are good. So, you know, it's a process that I go through, but I can honestly say, you know, it's almost always works, you know? And if for some reason we were in a situation once where we had someone who didn't really fit in and. We fired him.
0: <laughs> so, fire slowly, fire quickly. I mean, you know, but it's if
2: it's why make everybody miserable in this situation? I was miserable. The other people were all miserable. The director was miserable, and, and it's like, why are we allowing this one person to make us miserable? And but that was the only situation I could think of. Generally, we've been very fortunate and lucky with the people we hire. You know, and they fit in pretty well. And, awesome. You know, Wes has a very Kind of unusual way of working. And I explain that to them so they understand it's not going to be like your usual movie. It's going to be done in a certain Mm -hmm. way. And you know, make sure you're comfortable with that before you get hired. So, you know.
0: That actually brings me to a question that I have in terms of finding balance between being tenacious and being patient around complex shots. Obviously. The work you've done with Wes Anderson, for example, have these beautifully constructed and orchestrated shots. I think of the technocrane shot at the end of the Royal Tenenbaums, which I think I watched that film when I was a little bit too young because I was watching it alone (laughs) at night with my hand on the power button ready to turn it off in case my parents came in. And it just like resonated and hit, cut me so deep. But that shot at the end, for example, it's obviously so, so much went into every shot in that film, but that one has so much in terms of execution and critical for wrapping up the story and, you know, not a beat is missed in it. So, you know, for something like that, how do you continue to stay motivated, engaged and patient through the most complex shots? And what advice do you have for an emerging filmmaker who is trying to achieve something that ambitious?
2: Well, It reminds me a little bit when I was much younger, I was a basketball player and it's like, it's like being an athlete and you're nervous. I was nervous when these situations come up and Wes describes a shot to me and and I think, oh my God, that's really hard. And, you know, but I have this ability to generally not show that I'm nervous, even though inside I might be just going nuts, you know? And I'll describe to the crew what we want to do, and they'll go, "Okay, okay," you know. And but I take it as a challenge to do it. And many times, Wes will describe something to me, and I'll think to myself, "Oh my God, how are we going to pull that one off?" But you know, we find a way, and it's like going into the big game, you know. And you have to—you're nervous going in, and but you're focused on it, and you know that you have to do a certain amount of whatever to pull this off and you know when hiccups happen along the way you just deal with them as they come along and you know I'm not a screamer or a yeller I, I rarely show anger on a set and you know it's you just take it as it goes and I take a more of a zen approach to it and okay that's a problem how are we going to solve this problem you know and it comes with a great deal of satisfaction when it's over i mean i can give you an example on grand budapest hotel there's a scene towards the end of the movie where everybody's coming out of rooms in the hotel and there's a gunfight that goes on and it was on the fifth floor of our our, uh our set it was actually originally a a what do you call it not a mall It was like a department store you know Mm -hmm. it was abandoned and we found it and so we took it over and turned it into our hotel And so the grips constructed this scaffold for me to be on. And I was on the scaffold by myself and, you know, they required me to do all these whip pans and move around very quickly on the scaffold. And so once I got up there with the camera, I realized that as I was moving around the scaffold, the whole scaffold was going like this because of my movement, you know? And, I was freaking out, you know, I'm like, oh my God. And now the actors are starting to arrive on the set and everybody's ready. They want to shoot. And, and I, you know, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, and I was really nervous about it. And then uh, there's an old trick that I've seen many dolly grips use in focus pullers. They put a laser pointer, attach it to the head of the camera. And I just pointed at the ground and I made little X's one, two, three, four, five, six. And then I just stood there and I operated the camera without moving and just, and I capped the eyepiece because we shoot film. And I would just hit the X's with the pan handle at the right moments because I had to do it. Not only that, but I had to know when the dialogue was because no one's saying pan, you know, it's like, I had to knew right when the actor finished his last word and then I would go to the next one, you know, and it was really tricky pulling that shot off, but. You know, I, and, I, and we did several takes of it, but you know, and I was really nervous about it. But in the end, when West said, "Okay, we got it, we got it," let's move on. It was like this feeling of such accomplishment that I pulled it off by this kind of unorthodox, unorthodox way of, of operating a camera. I mean, if I had a remote head, it would have been different. But you know, we typically don't use remote heads, so it just was a way of dealing with it in a very Uh, pressurized situation with everybody there and pulling it off so I I remember this the sense of relief and you know they pulled it off you know after that and so um, that was one extreme example but many examples that were were, you know I know this is going to be difficult to to do and you know we just I have a great team around me that helps me and you know the, the grips and the gaffer and the electricians and so they, as focus pullers, obviously, and everyone kind of pitches in and helps, gives me ideas, and we figure it out, you know. And knock on wood, you know, we've always managed to do that. But, you know, there's time will come when well, we maybe we can't. But, uh, hopefully not.
1: <laughs> I have a few questions, actually, to kind of relate to that. You know, it, it's kind of funny because, I mean, I started doing film probably 2008 or so. And so, you know, pretty much my whole career has been digital. Like, you know, film is not really, you know, I've been on a a couple sets here and there where we shot film, but not much. And so, you know, a lot of us I'm like, oh, thinking about like, for example, the the optical viewfinder, how, you know, you're just capping it off. And with all of these complicated movements, do you oftentimes like for those complicated shots, or do you have an onboard monitor?
2: that you're using so that you can uh, get a
1: little bit away from camera
2: yes we do have an onboard monitor and there are occasions when i'll use it i i can remember on uh darjeeling limited we were on a real train that we were shooting and the compartments were like the size of a large closet and we had one particular shot where uh, it was a dolly move and a boom up and a boom down and it was we were so tight, we were always up against the walls. and You know, it was a really difficult shot to pull off. And I actually had two monitors because one started very low. The camera started very low, and then it went way up high, and then I had to make a whip pan over there. So I had a monitor, you know, for the first move up. And then when I made the whip pan, I had to go to another monitor because I was crapped against the wall, and I couldn't, you know get stand up to put my eye up there so we actually used two more it was one of the most difficult again one of the most difficult shots i've ever done and uh trains moving you know and the dolly grip sanjay was pushing the dolly and he was worried because sometimes it lurches and then i would be trapped behind the dolly and smashed into the wall and you know it was tricky it was tricky and and uh my focus blower had a hands full too so the three of us were in the, you know, again it's the three of us and the boom guy and Wes in this tiny little compartment, and they're ducking in the background so they're not in the shot. And it was a real, and all three of us when it was over, we just looked at each other. I remember like, oh my god, you know, well, yeah, I'll never forget that one. And I think we were all kind of pushed to our limit as far as pulling that one off for sure.
1: Yeah, I didn't did not expect the answer to be. Yes, and sometimes even two monitors. So that's, I I know, pretty specific. But great nonetheless. I guess the other thing, too, was just like, you know, like, I I feel like I watched one shot. Maybe it was, I'm not sure if it was from Asteroid City or if it was from one of the, the shorts. But just that there were a lot of, like, camera moves that, you know, might not be exactly motivated by some sort of, like, character's movement in the scene. Yeah. And so just like, you know, I feel like myself as a DP, I, you know, I'm always like, Oh great. There's some character movement. That'll tell me when I should start panning. But you know, when it's like, Oh, it needs to be on this line. Like, I don't know. Are you doing a lot of rehearsals? Are you looking at
2: sides? Like, is there uh, I have to kind of learn and Sanjay who pushes the dolly. We have to kind of know the script because you know, there were certain times in asteroid city, for instance, where a character would move to the side and then we'd pan over, you know. And rather than following him, is, is what you're describing, which normally you would just, you know, you'd pan with him as he goes, you know. But sometimes they would move and then we'd pan, you know. And that was coming from west, And I felt he felt it gave it some sort of energy and some sort of almost randomness visually that
0: disorientation yeah Yeah.
2: and it's like whoa you know now they're panning, you know so uh, i understand what you're saying but that was something that he kind of thought up and uh, you know he'd say i I don't want because i i naturally would start panning when they would move over there and he said oh just wait till they get there and then pan okay you know and uh, so that was all coming from him and it was a, a stylistic choice that he made and you know again my my dolly grip Sanjay also is the same way. I mean, he you know he's trained to move the camera with the actors, and and sometimes we would delay the move or you know just to get that kind of effect. So you know, you know.
0: I'd love to talk about the evolution of style. We're we're obviously in speaking a lot to your work with Wes, but specifically moving into Asteroid City and then the series of Roald Dahl shorts, which yeah. took me by surprise by how much they viscerally reminded me of reading the shorts as a kid and growing up reading so much Roald Dahl. So when you're working on a newer project with the director, um, establishing an evolving look and style between your dynamic, what do those conversations look like? And how do you as the cinematographer like to help shape that vision?
2: Well, I, you know, we, you know, just to get off West because I talk about, about him a lot, but you know, uh, I'll talk about Love and Mercy, for instance, which was a movie I did with Bill Polat, and it was about Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. And, you know, it was a movie that was takes place in the 60s and the 80s, basically. And so we were very eager to differentiate visually those two time periods. And, you know, obviously the producers had budgeted digital, but... I felt like because they lived, the Beach Boys lived in an analog world. We should, and I felt it would better reflect visually that time period, you know. And not to say that you can't do that with a digital camera, but I just felt it would be better. And, and then I took it one step further. I said, let's shoot all the Paul Dano stuff in sixteen millimeter, you know. And that, of course, met with like not the most positive review, <laughs> but. Uh, I went and shot some tests and prep, and I showed them to Bill. And as a cinematographer, if you go to the producers and say, I want to shoot 16 millimeter, they're just going to laugh at you and say, oh, yeah, right, forget it. But if you get the director on your side, so the two of you go in, then they have to listen to you. And so Bill signed on. He said, okay, I like this. And it was, a, And we also came up with this idea that with the stuff in the studio, if you've seen the film, It'd be all handheld and it would be two cameras. And typically I shoot one camera and shoot documentary style. And Bill really pushed myself because I operate one camera and Casey Hodgkins did the other one, you know, to make it awkward. You know, don't make because as an operator, you always want to make the classic, beautiful shot. But he wanted something that felt a little off and a little more mm-hmm. crazy. And he encouraged us to go in that direction. And, because, and it was the only movie I've ever worked on where I would never see a rehearsal because Bill would rehearse the actors, but Casey and I couldn't see where they're going to be because he wanted us to be more spontaneous in the way we, we use the camera. And I'm like, okay, you know, and it also means that it was a more general lighting rather than specific lighting, you know, because we had no idea where the actors were going, so I couldn't put light stands or anything anywhere. So a lot of it was overhead fluorescence, or we did other things up top that I wouldn't see. And and then they'd bring Casey and I in, and they'd say, okay, action! <laughs> you know. And so it gave a spontaneity to the scenes that I got a lot of positive comments from people later you know that wow we love those scenes in the studio they really felt real and that was kind of what we were going for and then when we shot the 80s part with john cusack as brian wilson we shot 35 millimeter and it was a more conventional traditional we were generally on a dolly or a a head and it wasn't going for the crazy you know compositions that we were doing with brian paul you know and and so it kind of gave a, a very different feeling to the film at that point. And so that was something Bill and I had kind of discussed early on. You know, it depends on what I'm working on. Uh, you know, I know, for instance, Squid and the Whale, Noah Baumbach, really loved the French New Wave. And while well, they were kind of, you know, still, again, it was a lot of, we shot that, happen at B 16mm as well. And a lot of it was handheld. And... There were really no marks for the actors, where when you work with someone like Wes, they're very specific marks that everybody has to hit. And the actors were kind of free to move around. And because I was handheld, it was one camera, I was able to kind of move around, you know, to recompose certain shots. And it was, again, more general lighting, not the kind of lighting I would do on a Wes film, because with Wes, everything is so carefully controlled and I know exactly what it's gonna be, I can be much more specific about where I put the lights.
0: I have a very tactical question. And I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who has watched your work, has chosen to become a cinematographer, maybe they're applying to film school right now, maybe they're just out there making things. What are some of the routines that you do to stay like healthy, sharp, and safe when you get to set? Like physically warming up, especially when you're doing all these handheld long, long days.
2: Because when I was younger, uh, you know, I was, I'm not a great athlete. I was an okay athlete, but I was in pretty good shape, you know. And now that I'm older, I'm in worse shape. (laughs) One thing I've done is I take care of myself better. A long time ago, you know, people on film crews tend to go out and party, and I stayed up. Pretty late party in one time and I paid for it the next day. And I said, I'm never doing that again. And I, I did it one night. This is many years ago. And the next day I showed up on set and I felt horrible. And I just said, this is stupid. Don't ever do that again. And so I don't, you know, I take care of myself and I used to have a seven hour rule of sleep. So if I had to get up at six, it was light out, lights out at 11. And then about I think it was on the French Dispatch. Uh, I made the eight hour rule and I l- adhere to that really strongly. And that extra hour of sleep is really, you know, really uh, helped me, I think, you stay sharp all day. I also used to drink a lot of coffee to keep myself going <laughs> during the day. And then I just started. You know, my stomach couldn't handle it, and so I stopped drinking coffee, you know, and I drink tea, but and try not to eat a lot of junk, you know, because the fast service table has a lot of candy and things. That, you know, you eat a candy, and you think, oh, for the next half hour, you feel supercharged, but then you really pay for it later. So I try to eat healthier, you know, and avoid the candy and the sweets and get sleep and just don't stay out late. You know, drinking or doing things like that, you know? And so, you know, and and I do ride my bike as I've gotten older. I don't play basketball anymore, but, you know, I try to stay semi fit and I'm lucky because I'm just naturally very thin and, you know, I don't have those kinds of issues. So, but yeah. It's a good
0: reminder for our listeners like the, that your body is what will carry you through on set and carry you through in those hard times to pull off, you know, whatever shot, but like, It's so easy to almost dismiss that, especially when you're in the crunch of filming. But we need to like honor that we need sleep. We need to take care of ourselves. And too much coffee can do some weird things to our bodies. I
2: I just think again the sleep one was a big one for me. And just being aware, okay, you know, maybe have a beer or two at dinner, but you know, don't overdo it and then get your eight hours sleep and you know just really take care of yourself because when you're working on a movie, you're running a marathon, you know, it's, and you, by the end of the movie, you're, you know, you're pretty worn out just from the stress and the time hours you work. And it, that's when you really have to dig down and really, you know, come through as equally as if it was your first day. So I always look at it that way. It's a, we're running a marathon. So take care of yourself and save yourself because two months from now, you're going to need it. <laughs> Yeah. You know, yes.
0: Yeah. Ryan, I know you had some very tech forward uh questions for Bob, so
1: I did. You know, I guess here's one that that's not well specific. I, I you know, I tried to read a couple of articles just about asteroid city, you know, before before this and I just saw some things about how, you know, you guys would like to split the focus amongst two actors. Yeah. You know, something like that where, you know, you would be trying to hold, you know, hold the focus between the two. And I guess like, you know, I'm think again, I'm thinking like, you know, with the, the digital tools that I have, I, I can just stop down and, and I can see on the monitor, you know, oh, okay, it's going to be, now they're both both in focus. I have enough stop to do it. I guess I'm curious, like, do you, is your AC using something like the PCAM app or something like that to... For, to help you guys to figure out,
2: you know, what stop you have to be at in order to hold everybody. Yes, exactly that. And you know, Wes will come to me early on in the day and say, "I have someone very close to camera and someone way back there, and I want to make sure they're both in focus." So I huddle with my AC and say, "Okay, what does it take?" And he has his apps that he looks at, and you know, it's usually like an eleven <laughs> or something. Like yeah, that. sure. You no, know, and. You know, in Asteroid City, because so much of it was out in the desert during the day. You know, we shoot film, which is ASA 200. It yeah, sure. wasn't a problem for us to have those deep stops, but it gets w- more difficult on the stage. And particularly, yeah. You know, as I was talking about having a theatrical lighting designer, you know, you know, used to lighting for theater, but they're not used to lighting for film. So the lights they're using are not strong enough. To give you those that focus so we would have to kind of coordinate and collaborate on that and you know i just one thing i said whatever you think bring the next size up you know because <laughs> it, it, i can guarantee you we're going to need it you know and so it gets kind of tricky and there were certain shots inside that we needed to light to 11 which is a lot of light you know and and you know, it it becomes trickier to do that, you know. So you know Yeah. But I feel
1: like Wes is not really a big split diopter kind of person, no. right? Like you yeah, would I mean, never you would not use that. That's not a solution. Yeah. yeah. That's what I
2: figured. We just like I mean typically we're on wider lenses. So that might help us a little bit. You know, we shoot like a spherical a lot of twenty-one, twenty-five millimeters, you know. So that helps us a little bit, but at the same time, you know even those lenses, when you have to do such a broad split, it can require a lot of light and how to do that you know it's something that I think younger cinematographers who have grown up on digital and don't get me wrong. I love digital cameras, I shoot them all the time, but they they're so sensitive to light, you can walk into a restaurant or just rooms and add maybe one light. A, for your star or something and work a lot with existing light in a lot of situations. And because I came up in film, it was a different animal. And so you learn to light differently a little bit with film than you do digital cameras. And and you know, if I you know a lot of I think younger cinematographers, because they grew up on digital cameras, you know, if you say, okay, light this two eleven with ASA two hundred they would really struggle to do that you know <laughs> you know i mean particularly now with the sony venice it's what 2500 or something you know i mean <laughs> you know it's a whole different animal You know, so um yeah very different than 200 asa film so. yeah no, no, no I, yeah, yeah it's the same i do i shoot alexis all the time and they're beautiful but it's different animals and i, I remember years ago i interviewed raul putard who was a French cinematographer who shot Contempt, a lot of the Godard movies and a lot of the Truffaut movies. And he was telling me when color film came in, it was like ASA 25. And so this required a tremendous amount of light, you know, and then they got it to 50. And he said, when they got it to ASA 100, they were like dancing in the streets. They were so happy, you know, and oh, wow, we got ASA 100 film now. This is great. You know, And you know, to the kids shooting these digital cameras, if, it, if you put the ASA at a hundred, they'll be like, "Oh my god!" You know, that's like prehistoric. You know, uh, but that's how film has kind of evolved over the years, and you know, it's just a different, a little bit different style of lighting. I think. You know, I feel fortunate that I kind of came up with film through most of my career until you know, I guess digital cameras have been around like fifteen or twenty years now. But all my early Films were all
0: you know, Most of my films were filmed. So. Well, I want to be mindful of your time, Bob. You've been so generous taking us through so many different elements of, of your work. Um, do you have any final advice for emerging filmmakers, somebody who is just getting their start, um, as most of our listeners are?
2: I would say go out and shoot stuff. And even with it doesn't matter if it's your iPhone, you know, and I think one of the kind of advantages that the kids today had over us when when I was young, uh, we had to shoot film, which was expensive. You had to rent a camera. You had to buy the film. You had to pay the lab costs. And now, you know, like we have a Canon 5D here. We have all kinds of uh, digital cameras that we shoot with. And, you know, just go out and shoot. That doesn't matter what it is. Or, you know, get a couple of your friends and, you know, go in the room and turn off the lights and just shoot with the window light. You know, like this, my room right now is just there's a window over there and, and that's all it's lighting me, you know, and just learn about lighting. And if you can afford like one of the digital kind of SLRs, I mean, they're, I think they're like 2,500 bucks or three grand or something. You know, I know that's a lot of money to people, but. And you can learn just how to shoot. And and then if you can edit them, that's even better because, you know, I started working in an editing room and, and as a cinematographer, you have to know, you know, how it's going to be put together. And, And it's never edited exactly how I think it's going to be, but I have a idea and that helps you to shoot because in a lot of ways I shoot for the cutting room, you know, and, think about what the editor is going to be doing because if you shoot a bunch of stuff that doesn't cut together, you know, then you kind of, you know, destroyed the whole idea. And so shoot as much as you can, edit it yourself and you'll learn a lot, you know, I think. And, uh, you know, that's my advice. And even like when my daughter was started, we shot a little film on the iPhone, you know, and there's this, we had this little story about my son who was a little young, very young back then. And he gets on a train and he loses his parents. And, you know, he ends up he ends up downtown in the train station. And, you know, I knew that if we had a regular camera and we're shooting on a, on a train, you know, people would stop us and, what are you doing? You know, but because we were shooting on the iPhone, you know, no one even noticed us. You know, we even got, we, you know. Shots without my son in it, you know, just people sitting on the train and stuff, and no one noticed it, and it turned out pretty well, you know. You know, and this was a film we did years and years ago, you know, when she was a student, and and then she edited it together on her computer, you know. And I think you learn a lot that doing that, and just study lighting, and sometimes go and you know, if you like a movie, if you have it, you know, whether you're streaming or whatever, turn the sound off. And just look at the movie without the sound and, and just look at what they're doing with the camera and with the lighting. And I think that's a really good way of learning as well. Because, you know, so often you're kind of just swept up in the story and the dialogue and performances, and which is a good thing. That's what you want to happen. But at the same time, if you just really kind of want to concentrate on the, you know, the cinematography or the editing, I mean, that's. It's a really good thing to do. Just turn the sound off and look. Oh, okay, they got that shot. And, and then think about it later. Okay, these were the shots that they got for that scene, because I've learned that the blocking of the actors has such an impact on, on how you decide to shoot as well. You know, so and you know, directors will all block their actors differently. So I try to get involved in that as much as I can. You know, but at the same time, I don't want to interfere with their process. So.
0: You know, well, this is such tips. great advice. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for all the work that you do to tell stories. It's something that we really benefit from and we appreciate you coming on and we hope you join us again so we can have a part three of right. you and no film school.
2: All right. Well, yeah. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>
0: Thank you, Bob, for joining us again on the No Film School podcast. And Ryan Thomas for joining us as well and for bringing your cinematographer expertise to the table to help us ask the questions that I wouldn't know to ask. I really appreciate you being here.
1: Not a problem. (laughs) Had a lot of fun.
0: What stood out to you, Ryan?
1: You know, I think he just confirmed my prior feelings that I've had that it's really important for you to be friends with the director. I love that. You know, I was just like, oh, okay, good, good. You don't have to work with people you don't like.
0: (laughs) I love that. And I am here for that. And I agree, especially when you're in the trenches together, you want to be able to look to the person who is holding the camera behind the camera, helping set up the camera, everything in charge of what is actually going to be on the screen at the end of the day and trust them, and then also be able to joke with them, um, which it sounds like that is the dynamic that Bob likes to work with. that's the vibe. uh, It's the vibe, and it's great. (laughs) And I also, I love this sort of family situation that he and his team that work with Wes Anderson have cultivated. I I
1: believe it, too.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, okay, I'll have a beer or two, and then I'll get my eight hours of sleep, and then I'll go and work and then I'll hang out with the family and I there's something very romantic and summer campy of going to a location to shoot something and that's something that you know I think I'm going to continue doing sorry and also owning it because there is something (laughs) about bringing people together to make something that's really special um and I love that he loves that I love that you love that and. (laughs)
1: You love it. It makes sense.
0: How could you not? And I want to say thank you to our listeners for tuning in. You can like, rate, and subscribe to No Film School anywhere you can listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at No Film School. You can get a ton more Robert D. Yeoman content on the No Film School website. We are always geeking out about him. He's amazing. And you can also let us know what you thought of this episode, podcast at nofilmschool.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you want to hear more of. And we love to hear how you're doing because what we're doing is really hard. And we appreciate you. Thank you for listening.